0: It's possible to audit people in real time, unlike in traditional finance on chain. But the reality is that if you don't know all the addresses and you don't know what belongs to whom, is you know it's useless, right? And so with Arkham, that's actually what, what, what we're trying to do. We're trying to tie those two things together and actually make what is already transparent and auditable actually useful by tying all of the relevant information to those pseudonymous, like alphanumeric pseudonymous addresses.
1: All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Today is March 20th, and I'm joined by Westy and Effort Capital from the Blockworks Research team uh, to discuss all the craziness that's happened over the last seven days since we talked to you last on the previous episode. Uh, We've got a really good interview today with Miguel Morel, the founder and CEO of Arkham Intelligence. Uh, They specialize in on-chain data analytics and really help connect the dots on who uh, the entities behind specific on-chain addresses are. Uh, So we we kind of really dive into why Arkham was founded and really, uh what it's doing in the space, as well as hit on some of the recent events and some of the findings that Arkham has found uh, about those topics. But before we get into that, well, we got a good little discussion here coming up and I'm going to throw it to you effort first. you know, It's been a crazy last seven days. I think Bitcoin's up like 20, 26%, ETH is up only 11%. What's going on? I think a lot of this is driven by the macro climate and that's definitely not my area of expertise. Uh, so I'd love for you to be like a shining light for us there. What do we got going
2: on? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I'll try my best. Um, yeah, so it, it really comes down to uh, starting back like in 2020, 2021 with COVID. Uh, you know, the Fed decided to money printer go burr, They decided to put uh, stimulus checks in, in everyone's pockets. They led to a zero uh, interest rate uh, environment, um, and really what happened was bank deposits because there was all this liquidity in the system. Bank deposits went exponential, uh, and really what banks are in the job of doing is taking your bank deposits and they do this kind of financial alchemy where they borrow short and lend long they're taking your deposits you you know you see the number on your on your screen when you log into your bank account that number of of dollars is actually not there sitting in the bank at any given time they're lending that out to uh, to people that want to take out mortgages they're lending that out uh, to um, you know deposit that into 10 year and into your treasuries so pretty much what happened was Banks got all this liquidity sitting in, in their on their order books or on their balance sheet, and their job was to really earn yield on that. So in a zero interest rate environment, the yield curve is essentially zero in the short term, and it extends out and goes up higher on the long end or tail end of the, the yield curve. So in order to make the best yield possible, banks took a bunch of duration risk by taking your cash and depositing that into 10 year uh, treasuries, which is at the time was the best risk free rate. Um, Obviously, we know what happened with the zero interest rate environment coupled with increased liquidity. We saw inflation absolutely go to the highest levels that then we've seen since like the 70s, like 50, 60 years ago at this point. And the Fed had to do something in order to combat inflation. And really the only tool at their disposal to, to combat inflation is increasing interest rates. Um, and we saw the Fed obviously increase interest rates at the quickest rate ever uh, in, in the history of, of, you know, I guess, the US economic system. Um, and this imp- and impacted the bond prices. So if you don't know when interest rates go up, bond prices go down, that's how you actually calculate the yield of, of, of a bond. Um, and what happens is all these banks were sitting on a lot of duration risk and a lot of interest rate risk, uh, where because they're, they bought these bonds at lower interest rates back in 2020, interest rates are higher now, their bond price, the actual par value, or the, or the price of the bond itself was much lower than that than they bought it for. And because of this, uh, banks are sitting on a lot of losses. The problem, the, the good thing is historically, banks can sit on these losses for a long period of time until these bonds mature. Uh, and smart money managers, what they typically do is they try to hedge their interest rate exposure by uh, through interest rate swaps. But what we saw is uh, certain regional banks like Silicon Valley Bank for, in, in particular, uh, and, and First Republic Bank, uh, did not do this. Um, really, what they were doing was, in my opinion, was they were kind of fighting the Fed. They were calling the Fed's bluff and saying, at, at a certain point, they're gonna they're going to either cut interest rates or, or pivot to some degree. Uh, our bond prices are going to appreciate back to the levels that we originally bought them for, and then we're going to be able to sell these bonds at at par value. Uh, the problem is that somebody, I guess, uh, in the latest uh, earnings report for Silicon Valley Bank. Um, people realized that Silicon Valley was holding on to a lot of unrealized losses that they were actually going to have to start realizing because people were starting to pull uh, their deposits out of Silicon Bank. Uh, this caused a bank run, which made their bank go from real unrealized losses to, to realized losses. And ultimately, this affects like the fundamental valuation of banks because it's the fundamental valuation of banks is all about how much AUM are they holding at any given point and how much yield are they actually generating on that AUM. When I start pulling money out of the bank their AUM goes down that leads to less potential yield that they can make on that and then you pretty much saw bank uh, valuations plummet like 50 60 70 percent in some cases to the point where banks like Silicon Valley first Republic, public and then most recently Credit Suisse are were, were essentially like negative equity or, or the shareholders were really hurting uh, you know again valuations fell precipitously in a really short period of time um, what changed was that the Fed came out with a, a new program called BTFP, which essentially allows regional banks to borrow against the par value uh, of the securities that they're holding on their balance sheet. So instead of having to liquidate securities to pay depositors that are you know, starting this bank run, instead of having to liquidate it and realize these losses, what they can do is go, hey, the hey Fed, I'm holding on to hundred billion dollars with the securities. Um, they're currently only valued at $70 billion, but when these securities go to maturity, they will be valued at $100 billion. Can I borrow against this $70 billion of securities? Uh, and you give me actually the par value at $100 billion. So pretty much the, the $70 billion of securities, they're borrowing at, at $100 billion. So they don't have to realize these losses. Um, and I think the problem with this is the borrow rate, that these banks are borrowing from the Fed is actually higher than the yield that these banks are getting on the treasuries to begin with. So banks are are lending or I'm sorry, banks are borrowing at a higher rate than the market's actually pricing these securities with to begin with. So in the short term, they're actually losing money, but it does allow them to survive in the event of a bank run. Uh, We're really just kind of kicking the can down the road. and because of you know QT, because of the, the interest rate hikes that the Fed has done, this has led to like a, a overall U.S. dollar security uh, liquidity crunch, not just in the United States, but globally as well, like what we saw recently with, with Credit Suisse this past weekend. Um, and over the weekend, the European Central Bank and a couple other central banks in, in the Western nations, as well as Japan, have decided to uh, increase the frequency of U.S. dollar operations from weekly to daily. So... This is kind of very similar or analogous to the repo markets where banks uh, borrow from the fed overnight they pledge their their securities on their balance sheet as collateral they get us dollars and then they're able to do whatever really they want with those dollars in order to generate yields or meet uh liquidity demand Um, but now we're actually taking this repo system and scaling it out on the international scale where the European Central Bank can now take their euros. Let's say, give it to pledge it to the Fed as collateral. The Fed will print dollars, give it to the central bank in Europe to then send that to the individual banks throughout Europe um, to meet whatever liquidity demands there are. Uh, really, what we're seeing right now is just like a drying up of, of liquidity in the system, and we're starting to see things break. Um, and really, this is the first time since the two thousand seven, two thousand eight financial crisis that we're seeing like a, a really big confidence killer, like in the banking system. And this is the first time an internet native population is seeing the risks uh, with the fractional banking financial system. Um, you also saw the Fed funds futures go from 5.5% uh, just this past week uh, to 4%. So. The the market was pricing in an additional 75 BIPs from now until the end of the year in rate hikes, just because inflation still has yet to cool. And now the the market's pricing in actually 75 BIPs cuts by the end of the year. Um, And these are like some of the largest swings in interest rate or Fed fund futures movements like historically you're seeing like three sigma moves in interest rates. And typically interest rates are supposed to be like relatively steady, but because of the overall uncertainty in the banking system, and I think the global economy right now, people just don't know how to price risk. And what you're seeing as a result of this, with the internet native population seeing like all this uncertainty in such a quick period of time, that our banking system is extremely fragile and Bitcoin There's a lot of narratives about what Bitcoin potentially could be, but I think it can be seen as like a put option on the on the U.S. and the global banking system. Um, When Fed Funds futures uh, decrease, that leads to a risk on environment. uh, I'm sorry, a risk off environment. And you see risk assets like Bitcoin and crypto in general kind of move up higher. And on top of this, not only are Fed Funds futures and interest rates uh, futures decreasing, you're specifically seeing like the banking system like partially collapse, whether or not it's a, a long-term event or a short-term event remains to be seen. But I think people are kind of hedging their exposure to the, the fiat or the fractional reserve banking system and seeing Bitcoin for like the first time ever, like as a safe haven asset uh, in this uncertain period.
1: Yeah, that makes, a, that makes a lot of sense. And to try to briefly summarize that up, I guess. So uh, for one re- reason or another, we had a bank run that started with SVB. Uh, that kind of transpired into some serious hesitations around the safety of the US banking system. So the Fed kind of came in and was like, hey, we're going to be the lender of last resort here. Give us the bonds, we'll give you face value in cash. Uh, so that kind of like put a patch over everything. Uh, and then macro economists, uh, ec- Macro experts and Twitter experts alike both debated over whether or not this was QE for uh, what seems like the last 72 hours straight. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, there's new like cash flowing into the system uh, that wasn't there before. Is kind of how I'm thinking about it, which I know will piss some macro experts off. But that's, that's where my head's at. Um, and then we see, you know, this new... Uh, effects happening, kind of like rippling into the European markets with uh, you know, the recent announcement today that they're facilitating what's similar to like this repo overnight system. Um, so we see like this rise in uh, lender of last resort activity or things that look a lot like QE, but maybe aren't technically QE. Uh, and that's kind of like putting disbelief in the traditional financial system. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, equities are pretty flat today. I think the Nasdaq's like Basically flat at the moment. Um, this is about 2:30 p.m. Eastern, and you know, Bitcoin is is up 26% over the last seven days. E- ETH is up 11% over the last seven days. It doesn't really seem like it's a risk asset thing to me. And it more seems like for the first time in history, when there is a serious fissure or crack in the infrastructure of the traditional financial world, there is for the first time a viable alternative to the current rails um and that is crypto, and so it, you do see Bitcoin getting favored quite heavily here which I think is a really interesting takeaway uh, You know my personal view is like eth as a whole is far more interesting, especially for something like recreating the banking infrastructure but at the end of the day people are like looking for hard money is what it appears
2: yeah I would say you also see it's not even just Bitcoin right it's like gold is also uh <clears throat> eclipsed over two thousand dollars for the first time in I mean I don't know exactly how long I want to say five years plus i don't quote me on that, but you're seeing even gold, like physical gold, actually increasing value to the highest levels in at least a handful of years, to, to my recollection. So people are looking for like hard money, uh, whether that's digital hard money or, or physical hard money, in, in forms of gold. Um, this like this store of value narrative is really starting to pervade. And again, whether or not the the banking, whether or not this is QE or not. I think that's obviously like a question for for real like macro and and, then macro experts, macro economists. But I think what this is showing is that at a certain point in time, like maybe sooner rather than later, the Fed will have to pivot. Whether they hike rates or not coming up Wednesday, I think is remains to be seen. Uh, I I would say that what we're seeing right now is probably not QE because this is like short term daily to weekly borrowing by central banks and by regional banks. Uh, so it's not like dollars that are going to stay out in the system uh, into people's pockets, uh, you know, moving forward. But this could be like a, uh, the, a pre-QE leading up to QE, like later in the year or sometime next year. And crypto is like the furthest out on the risk curve possible. You saw crypto peak and then start heading lower while the S&P and while the equities market was still going high, making all time highs um, in, in late 2021, early 2022. And crypto is typically like the most reflexive asset class. It's the first one to move up and it's the first one to move down. And this is really the market, I think, front running what it thinks the market, the, the, the banking infrastructure, the banking system is going to do, along with the Fed, obviously in six to 12 months time. So there's a really good chance that you actually see this kind of decoupling or it's decorrelation, kind of like what we're seeing now with Bitcoin where crypto is gonna move up just in anticipation of QE and the equities market still gonna either go flat or down for the next six to 12 months. And people are gonna call it like the great decoupling. But in reality, what it really is probably is just the crypto markets move quicker. And eventually the equity market will follow when QE actually is like officially restarted if it is restarted. Um, But it's just really interesting, like the overall liquidity flows and people think the moment that QE or the moment that new liquidity is entering the system, crypto markets think that, oh, good, we're getting some of that new liquidity. That's new capital infusion into the system. Let's Let's pump our bags kind of thing. So it's really interesting like psychology.
1: Yeah. And one of the other interesting takeaways I've had from the price action over the last seven days is really how the majors Bitcoin and ETH have like They've got some serious momentum behind them. But then you look at just other like blue chip DeFi uh, tokens, not a lot of movement there. So like those are trading more in line with, with equities, which I find is pretty interesting. Like the capital is really flowing into the, the majors, which uh, probably is a, a fair reaction given the, the hesitation, uh, you know, the, the questions around the, the macro condition at the moment. But I don't know, Just just thought it was pretty interesting to see the majors really taking the hold and leading this rally.
3: I mean, I do think that OG DeFi does get a bid. I mean, going back to what we said earlier, like this bid on Bitcoin and why Bitcoin's outperforming is it's sort of a hedge on the chaos in the banking system. And OG DeFi is sort of recreating our banking system, but on chain. And so once I think people start to realize, whereas now I think a lot of the, the macro focus funds, they like they understand Bitcoin, but don't they don't really understand what's going on with ETH and with DeFi. but once they eventually do and people do want to hedge the, the traditional banking sector, they're probably going to do so through DeFi. So I do expect it to get a bid at some point. But yeah, it's been interesting that it's been pretty flat over the past few weeks.
2: The 2020-2021 cycle, you saw like a capital rotation. It was large caps to mid caps from mid caps to, to low caps and then low caps to like really like, you know. I don't know, dog coins and then really the shit coin like side, like the ultra risky end of the of the risk curve. Um, and I also think it it's the different there's different participants that like to invest in this asset class. There's a lot of crypto native funds that might think that this is obviously a bull case for DeFi, but I think the the largest money capital inflows are coming from people that might be using Fidelity Crypto that just opened up their own uh their own crypto product that allows people to invest in Bitcoin and ETH. Um, and not necessarily other riskier assets. So this could be like a macro fund capital infusion where they're seeing Bitcoin as his hedge against the financial system, uh, and maybe these non-crypto native capital inflows are just not privy to what DeFi can offer.
1: Yeah, what's what's great about this, uh, I think, at, at the end of the day, is for the first time, you know, if you manage any kind of money, you had to for like. Either you've seen it before or if you haven't, you now it was very much so in your face, like the value of what having an open permissionless system can can add uh, really to the world. So, you know, that, I don't know, there's a lot to take out of that, but that's kind of my biggest takeaway. But, you know, let's get into the more crypto native stuff. Westy, who you got in the hot seat or cool drone this week?
3: Yeah, guys, I don't know if you've heard, but roll-ups aren't real. Um, yeah, in the hot seat, I got roll-ups, so... I don't know if you guys are in the same corners of CT that I am, but I saw a lot of discussions on rollups in the past week. So I think it started with Kelvin Fitcher of OP Labs. He gave a talk titled, How Rollups Actually Work. And the subtitle was ZK Rollups Don't Exist. They're not real. Um, so he basically, his argument to sum it up was that a rollup is not defined by the proof it uses in the validating bridge. The proof is only needed to get a view into what the rollup is doing. It's a completely separate thing. And so his eyes, like an optimistic rollup or like a ZK rollup, aren't real. Like a rollup is just a rollup and they just happen to use a certain proof for someone to get a view into the rollup. That was sort of the talk he gave. And Togrel of Scroll completely disagreed with that. And then he went to ETH Dubai and gave a talk called how rollups actually, actually work as a rebuttal. And he said that rollups are, actually defined by the validating bridge, it's not just a view into the rollup, but it actually defines what the rollup is. Because for example, let's say you wanted to move funds from the the L1 to the L2, you can't actually mince the funds on an L2 until you prove to the L1 that like things are good to go. And so like through the validating bridge is where that proof happens. And so the the rollup is explicitly defined through the validating bridge. And so there's a cool disagreement there and then you had John Charbonneau who basically said, all roll-ups aren't real, at least not yet, um, and released another one of those novels specifically looking at um, how to decentralize sequencers within roll-ups because they're all centralized at the moment. And that's sort of one of the biggest points of contention within roll-ups. And so, I mean, it makes sense that roll-ups are at the forefront of the conversation um, within infrastructure i like the really technical people in the space. I mean, ZK EVMs are set to launch pretty soon. Yeah. Protodank sharding in Q3. And then, yeah, more and more roll-up solutions are going to keep popping up. And then, yeah, in reality, like a lot a lot of people don't really know how they work under the hood. Like people are just kind of figuring out as we go. The ones that exist don't even really have fraud proofs. They're controlled by multi-sigs and they have like a centralized sequencer and so there's a lot that needs to change and so it's good that we're getting this discussion now
1: yeah i think that's the the most interesting point for me was really just the lack of centralization like we've done so like you know the space was born out of uh being truly decentralized and so it feels like the l2s just haven't got there yet and a lot of people look at that as like this like death sentence for Ethereum is like oh they're not centralized and I don't know like I've 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 written this uh, this sentence a couple of times in many reports that we've I've written but you know decentralization is is not uh something that you start with it's it's something that you build towards you, you don't just inherit decentralization on day one uh, you you very much don't need to build into it and so like yes we start with centralized roles today uh, but tomorrow we work towards building the decentralization factor of that so it's exciting to see. Uh, that projects are actually working towards that. Um, you know, that's just not an easy task. I think there's a, recently a, a flowchart of like how the sequencer. Uh, it was it was one of the it was optimistic rollups, either Arbitrum or, or Optimism. I can't remember, but it was like a flowchart of how their sequencer functions. And for like people who think decentralizing sequencers is, is easy, like look at this. And you know, it's just like a page full of, of different interactions with different parties and different smart contracts and infrastructure. And it's like yes, we've built this system. It's not just like something we can immediately put like flip a switch and like, oh no, now token, ho- to- token holders control how this thing works. Like it's not that simple. Um, so yeah, I-, I don't know, Westy, what's your takeaway? Like, where do you land on all of this? Like, do you think rollups are real? What do you think the future holds?
3: Yeah, in terms of like the conversations, I agree more with TogRoll and that like the validating bridge, especially for a smart contract rollup as opposed to a sovereign rollup, it-, it defines the rollup. And so on that like specific conversation, but yeah, like you said, like I'm a strong believer in like progressive decentralization where like at first you can't really be decentralized because it's not really efficient and you need to work towards a certain goal, but eventually your goal should be to decentralize. And if you look at like Vitalik's roadmap, like he, he, even he like looks at this stuff as training wheels and is actually like part of the roadmap and having like things being controlled by multi-sig um things along those lines where like it is like a necessary step to eventually get to the decentralized future and i do think like teams should be focused on getting a decentralized sequencer um getting their fraud proofs enabled because obviously it makes things more secure more decentralized better censorship resistance i'm um, just overall better but yeah it's it, it's something you get to over time
2: is decentralized sequencing like the last last frontier of decentralizing the stack?
3: Uh, it's probably the, the thing that people like, it would take the longest in terms of like decentralizing the stack, because I mean, a lot of the ropes are like controlled by multisig, like optimism and arbitrage are both controlled by multi-sig. So getting that into like a more decentralized alternative for, for governance and like controlling things, I think is another thing as well, but decentralizing the sequencer is extremely hard. As as Dan's alluded to earlier, like even centralized sequencers are pretty tough. Like actually making those truly decentralized is something that's gonna take time. And I would definitely recommend reading John Charbonneau's piece on decentralized sequencers, how we can do it, how we can implement them. Um, Cause yeah, it's a really important thing and it's gonna take a while to actually implement.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess moving on there, and still in the same vein of L2's uh, Global, or, global ar- Arbitrum Day when we finally get the airdrop uh, is in another three days from today. So uh, let's see, I, th- I guess that's Thursday. Um, so the day after this, re- this recording comes live, uh, everybody will receive their sweet, sweet Arbitrum airdrop. Uh, so Arbitrum is obviously in the cool throne this week. There was no getting around that one. Uh, they had an airdrop with 12 and a half, uh, 12.75% of the initial supply was airdropped to uh, ecosystem participants. And that was split between 11.6% to users of the protocol and 1.1% to DAOs that have built on top of the protocol. Um, so this is a massive airdrop allocation that was spread across 625,000 different uh, wallets. Um, and so there's definitely some users that have, have cybled this thing. Uh, I know I've heard some pretty crazy numbers floating around some of these group chats where people managed to rake in like six figures worth of ARB tokens, um, for better or for worse, you know, they, they, they tried to mitigate that. I think they brought in Nansen, uh, to work alongside to do some data analytics and kind of try to f- link different wallets together that were, uh, assumed to be. Uh, determined to be, you know, the same entity behind them and kind of remove those from, from the process. So at least they did make an effort to remove some of these side wallets. Uh, of course, it does appear that some have slipped through the cracks. Um, so the ARB token airdrops range between 625 tokens all the way up to 10,250 tokens per wallet. And on average, there's about 1,800 ARB tokens per wallet. Um, and so if you make some easy comparisons between the other optimistic grow up uh, optimism, you know, this we can look at the market cap and the FDV of that uh, token. It's been liquid for, you know, quite quite a few months now. Um, and if you look at the market cap, you could get to a number around 60 cents. Or if you look at more of the FDV of the two, uh, you could kind of base around a, a token price of 1.1, uh, and ten and so, you know, I've seen some pretty crazy Twitter threads that are suggesting like a $15 token price or even a $40 token price. Personally, not not pricing that one in. I, I do understand that Arbitrum has more activity and more TVL than Optimism uh, by quite a significant margin. If we look at total transactions happening on Arbitrum, even today, uh, a week after the an airdrop was announced, you're still seeing way levels way above our Optimism, and even on par with Ethereum, the base layer itself. So. Arbitrum does have a lot of users, does have a lot of activity, does have a lot of TVL, does have some very popular apps uh, built on top of it, such as GMX. And it. I would probably personally expect it to get a little bit higher of um, uh, evaluation relative to our optimism, personally, because it feels like the timing of this airdrop is just impeccable. Mar- markets are hot right now. It feels like number go up. Technology is back. We just saw Blur do its airdrop, and that was... A money printer for everyone so there is some free money already floating around airdrops are hot the conditions are hot um and so the question will ultimately be like where does this money flow like let's say we get a dollar token price and that's like you know about a 10 billion dollar fdv then everyone there's about you know Quite quite a good amount of, of of funds that have just been airdropped to all these users that are now can be basically slush funds. Like everyone tries to double their airdrop, pretty much. So uh, I expect these arbitrum ecosystem tokens to pump, and we've already seen some of that uh, with some of the smaller cap projects. You know, just having insane runs over the past couple months. Um, so you know, I guess the next question would be, where does this money flow?
3: I definitely want to take a, a quick second to shout out our Dune Dash that me and Dan built. Um, it's gonna have a lot of charts that auto-populate as soon as the, the airdrop goes live. And I know I'll be looking at the, the percentage of the airdrop that's been claimed over time, because as that reaches more and more towards 100%, you're more likely to get a bottom on the token price. So definitely wanna shout that out. Um, yeah, in terms of like where the money is going to flow, obviously arbitrage ecosystem makes sense. But I just think the bigger question is like, what is the ARB token gonna be valued at? Because as a result, like that's the amount of money that's essentially given out to people to then um, flow elsewhere. And yeah, like you said, there were a lot of really like bad takes on Twitter. Like some people using like TVL over circulated supply multiplied by 10, like some really crazy like equations to get a super high valuation. For me, it really comes down to to cash flow of the sequencer fees. Like at this point, Arbitrum has like two to two and a half uh, times the amount of sequencer fees that the optimism gets. Obviously in, so, in some cases you need to price in like the future fees that people expect. So with something like the OP stack, maybe they get a shared sequencer with some of the, the OP stack chains and they get more fees that way. But looking at sort of right now, two to two and a half times, if we assume on FTV that, that'll have a token price of around like two to two fifty for Arbitrum. And as a result, this airdrop would be two to two and a half billion dollars just falling from the sky, which I think is pretty pretty crazy. But I don't know if you guys have different valuations.
1: Yeah, wait, quit real quickly, Westy, run through the like what's the actual calculation that gets you to the, the sequencer cash flows?
3: So there's a we have a Dune board that looks at the the revenue of each Um, of Arbitrum and Optimism. Ours looks at sort of like the estimated L1 fees, which I need to change to the actual L1 fees because you can actually calculate those through DUNE. So there's another one that Kofi Kofi made that um, compares directly Arbitrum and Optimism's sequencer fees. And you can see, I forget what it was last week, but yeah, it was like 2.2X, I believe, from Optimism to Arbitrum. And yeah, it's on, it's priced in ETH. Um, since they both settle down to ETH. And so that's how you would get sort of the, the difference between the two.
1: And so that's just the amount of gas that users on the L2 are paying versus the amount of value that the L2 itself needs to pay to the L1 Ethereum to settle those transactions. Right?
3: Exactly. Yeah. Good clarification.
2: I agree Wesley, that you're going to see, I think you're going to see a lar- a higher FTV for. Arbitrum than Optimism. I wouldn't be surprised if you see two to 250, um, not even just speaking fundamentally, but like, I guess it's fundamentals, but Arbitrum ecosystem had like an organic usage. There was there was like a cult following, everyone and their mother traded on GMX. Everyone was building on top of GMX. It kind of like, it, I would say it was the first DeFi ecosystem out, outside of Ethereum base layer mainnet that had like DeFi Legos actually building on top of each other to create like this cohesive DeFi eco, uh, ecosystem and this overall like really strongly felt community. Um, not to say Optimism doesn't have a community, I, I do think they do. But I think if you tr- track like the comparison and transaction, uh, trend, number of transactions in how many daily active users there are, um, Arbitrum just had it. And and it was clearly like the front running leading layer two in, in, in crypto. Um, and I think if they kind of have like this cult following and what we've seen, especially in bear markets, whether or not the markets are hot right now or not. Like we've seen in, in bear markets, like the projects with the strongest cult following, like Chainlink in 2019, 2020, like had an insane pr- uh, run, right? Regardless of fundamentals. Um, and there's really not much of there's really not a stronger community today, I think, than the people that were uh in, in the RB ecosystem. And we'll see if that stays. We'll see like how much of that was organic and real, or if it was just people trying to get the the airdrop and run. Um I wouldn't be surprised if you see a lot of this capital stay inside the RB ecosystem. You're obviously like you said Dan, you're seeing Grail pumped like 130, 140% this past week, Radiance pumped like 50 ish percent this past week. Um and there's like a flywheel effect. All this airdrop money, stay. if it stays in the ecosystem, you're going to even see Arbitrum ecosystem even even go higher than potentially $2. I don't think it's going to get to $40. And I would love to have people that were claiming $40 Arby <laughs> and Bellagi claiming for $1 million Bitcoin in 90 days. Like they're 100% on the hot seat because I think people get a little too ahead of themselves. But um, but. Regardless, like the Arbitrum ecosystem like feels like they have something going. They have more momentum, I would argue, than any other ecosystem in the space, including base layer ETH. Like this this is it's an exciting time for the layer two ecosystem uh, yeah. in crypto.
1: Yeah, Arby's Arby's hot. <sighs> definitely wasn't me that sold a fat bag of Radiant like three weeks ago though. <laughs> definitely wasn't me. All right, but that's a great spot to end it here. I think. Well, uh, we had a great discussion today, and you know, I think the the key takeaway is be sure to check out our uh, our RB dashboard, Arbitrum dashboard. Uh, it's it really is gonna it's gonna be sweet. You know, we really built it into the the nature of the revolution will not be quarterly reported, and like the second that transactions start emitting from the airdrop contract, that dashboard is gonna start updating. Uh, so it's pretty sweet. Really excited about that as a data nerd, and OSD is too. So go get, go give that a check. Uh, We'll put the link in the description to that. And now onto the interview with Miguel Morel, the founder and CEO of Arkham. I cannot recommend enough for you guys to all check out blockworksresearch.com.
4: If you go over to the research tab and toggle free research, you're going to get access to some of the best free reports in the industry. And if you want to subscribe to Blockworks Research, you can do so using 0xresearch10 at checkout in order to receive $250 off. And you can also sign up to our free newsletter if you want to just get a little taste where we give alpha on governance. Gen trade ideas, market commentary, charts of the day, etc. Kind of get you caught up to speed on everything you
1: need to know in the market within five, ten minutes. Give us a follow at Blockworks Res, Blockworks Res on Twitter. We'll release our new reports during the week. And even if you uh, don't have access to the reports, you're not a paid subscriber, you can still check out the topics we're writing about and get a, a little bit of a brief insight into what uh, the contents of the report is about. If you want to know a little bit more how we think on the data side of things, head over to our Dune public account. We have four dashboards live there for free.
4: The revolution will not. Not be quarterly reported so definitely check those out and let's kick it over to the interview all right we've got a great interview set up with miguel morel the founder of arkham intelligence a crypto native intelligence tool to analyze on-chain data miguel thanks so much for coming on oh, thank you for having me yeah so I, I just want to get the backstory on arkham like what is it what led you to start it why did you think the market needed something like this
0: in general i was working in in, in the cryptocurrency industry working on, uh, on building some, some cool products related to stable coins. Um, and, uh, and in general, what, what struck me was that there was so much infrastructure that existed in, in the traditional financial system, uh, as well as in normal software development and, and software management, uh, where you could understand your user like as well as, as well as you wanted to. You could understand uh, the user demographics. Um, you could understand what they were doing on your on your application, what actions they were taking. Uh, and uh, and how they were using it. Um, but the reality was that w- with cryptocurrency, uh, if you were building a, a project where, you know, the token was the product, uh, or at least part of the product, um, you didn't have nearly as much uh, information on who the people were who were using your, your your product. You didn't have as much info about the demographics of your user base. You didn't have as much info about who, who they were sending the money to or, um, or, or for what purpose as opposed to say like something like a Venmo or a PayPal or a cash app where they have tons of information about what their users are doing all the time and can do targeted ads and UI UX and stuff like that. And so the original kind of inspiration for, for, for Arkham came from wanting a a deeper understanding for cryptocurrency users. And very quickly, I realized that, you know, that didn't just apply for, uh, uh, token projects and, and startups who also applied for, Trading firms and uh, and investors looking to understand who is moving markets, and so I saw it as a, a kind of bigger opportunity um, that I wanted to take advantage of, and that's how I got started.
1: What are some of the bigger challenges that you've seen thus far in trying to identify who these wallets actually uh, are operated by? Right, so you know uh, when you just see a, a wallet address, that's that's a pretty anonymous uh, anonymous you know set of numbers, right? But how do you draw parallels to who the entity behind that address generally is?
0: Our technology for the first, I would say two years of the project, we're about three years in, we started the company in, in Jan, 2020 was really when we kind of like incorporated and got like very, very serious about it. Um, and, uh, and, and now we're in March 23. And so the first two years um, that we worked on the company, uh, we basically exclusively worked on backend engineering and, and, and data infrastructure. Uh, in order to do two things. Uh, number one, take in as much information as, as, as possible from public data sources in, in a way that was very fast or as, as close to real time as we could possibly get from as many different sources as, as possible. The second would be actually creating the algorithms and heuristics that could match, you know, uh, ent- entities. Um, so, you know, particular kinds of trading firms, funds, exchanges, individuals, doesn't matter, um, entities to their cryptocurrency addresses uh, based on a number of different, you know, heuristics and, and understandings about what is likely to be true. So, for example, like with exchanges, you know, it's no, it's no secret that one of the best ways to get access to exchange addresses is just to interact with the exchange, right? You send money to, to the exchange uh, in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, and, uh, depending on the infrastructure, it probably has a, a deposit address structure, which means that you send money to an address generated by the exchange, which is, uh, appointed to you, the individual. And then the money moves from that deposit address into an exchange hot wallet. And that's like one of the best ways of getting access to the information about which exchanges own which, which, which addresses, right. And so that's one heuristic that can be used, which is, you know, wherever the money flows from that deposit address, uh, after it. Money has been deposited belongs to the exchange, uh, and whichever address actually deposited into that deposit address either you know belongs to the person who owns the deposit address or belongs to an associate of theirs that they're receiving money from, right? And so you can kind of begin narrowing down uh, based on you know just these two things um, who is likely to to, to own an address, um, but when there's thousands and you can do it in an automated way. Uh, then things become more interesting because then you can actually start to do de-anonymization at scale. Uh, and so that, that, that's what we were working on and, uh, and continued to work on until the point where we felt really comfortable with, with, with our technology and, uh, uh, and thought that, that it was great and, uh, and ready for launch. Um, and then, uh, and then afterwards we started working on, on our front end and, uh, on the, the design of the product itself and then ended up launching our private beta, uh, in, uh, August of 2022. Um, so we've been running that for, I guess it's been about seven months now, and, uh, and that's been a whole lot of fun and we've, we've gotten significant traction. So that's been
1: wonderful. So I'm a user of, of the beta platform as well, and I've loved it so far. But I'm curious, when you uh, log into that portal, like what what do you find is one of the most interesting things to track?
0: Well, on our homepage, um, in the bottom left-hand corner, uh, we have a rolling slideshow of the what we describe as the top entities. And that top entities list is basically just a a calculation of uh, the list of uh, entities on our back end who across the chains that we support uh, have the most money. And so that's kind of like, you know, I don't want to say like a Forbes list, but it's like the Arkham list of richest in crypto or most active in crypto. And so you can just wait for that slideshow to keep rolling on by until you find somebody interesting or who holds some interesting assets. Click on it and then like go through their entity, maybe throw in the visualizer in order to see who, who they've interacted with in the path, uh, try to get a sense for their connections, look at their portfolio, look at their trades uh, and see what direct, you know, what direction they're likely to take their, their balance in, in the future. Um, and, you know, I know many people try to use that as the kind of like source of alpha uh, because, you know, some of the most important people in the, in the space. Um, So I I think that's probably one of the most interesting things as soon as you log in.
4: Now, something that stuck out to me in the beginning when you said originally we were thinking, man, like DAOs would probably love a tool to kind of identify cohorts of users that maybe would be primed to target for an airdrop or maybe um, looking at retention analysis, different things like that. Has that actually... Ended up being one of the core use cases of Arkham. Like, do you have DAOs? Like, kind of like a consulting business where you you help them do these kind of things, or is it uh, more so retail focused in your mind? So
0: I don't know about DAOs, um, but uh, but definitely we have a number of people who try to uh, understand user bases. Uh, both internally. So, you know, you can imagine being a startup and wanting to understand your user base of who's using your token, but also externally, which means actually being an investor or being a trading firm and then analyzing a particular project ecosystem in order to understand if it's growing or slowing down, if you should invest, if you shouldn't invest, how active they are. So we have plenty of those. Um, in terms of the, the market itself, right now it's, it's, it's currently quite, uh, uh retail heavy. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we, I I would say probably it's like, you know, 60% retail, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit less 50%. Um, and then the rest is kind of, you know, actual full-time in an institution, professional traders. And by the way, when I say retail, many people often take the word retail to mean dumb. You know, that's not true at all, right? Like with our, with our private beta, it's not like we're just letting anybody onto, onto the Arkham platform. Every single person gets reviewed by our team before being let in, uh, into the beta. Uh, and, and a lot of these people, like, especially within crypto, they just don't work for an institution, right? They just don't work for a large trading firm. They don't work for an exchange, whatever, but they're still at home trading full time on, on Binance as, as if they were, right? And so there's plenty of people who are very professional very like sophisticated uh, in, in investors and, and traders who are working in this market uh, full time. And they're still considered retail because they, they, they're not part of an institution, right? And so um, for the most part, like, you know, all, all of the users are, are, are very smart, but I would say the breakdown is roughly, you know, 50% of people just being, you know, not affiliated with an institution as far as we can tell. And then the rest actually, you know, are part of an of an organization where they're using Arkham for a variety of different reasons. Of with uh, many of them are are analyzing markets or analyzing for for different kinds of trading and investment opportunities.
4: Yeah, that's actually a good flag. Retail tech te- uh, typically comes with like kind of a negative negative connotation around it. So uh, I, I think it's safe to assume that the users of your platform are likely on chain sluice as as people like to call themselves. But in terms of supporting new chains, like. How difficult is that for you guys? What goes into that decision process? And like, what's the underlying infrastructure? Are you guys running your own nodes? Or um, are you plugging into a lot of different data sources? How does it kind of look and operate underneath the hood?
0: Our process for actually implementing new chains, well, for the, for the most part, we were very focused on, on Ethereum in the beginning, mostly because that's you know, the ecosystem with the most kind of active uh, uh, users for the kind of thing that, that, that we're building. Um, but over time, obviously, um, we started the process of adding additional chains. Why? Well, because of user feedback, right? So we had a bunch of people who were using our product. And then they were like, hey, you know, I, I don't just want Ethereum. I also want, you know, X, Y, and Z. Uh, and so that's when we, we started building those out. And, uh, and the, the reality is that every kind of uh, uh, blockchain, you know, they can either be extremely similar to one another or they could be completely different. Um, so for example, like EVM chains, very similar, all very similar to one another, even though they all have their own unique quirks. Um, but you know, something like, like Bitcoin then is going to be very different from the structure of, of, of Ethereum. And so, um, the number one thing that, that we're doing now is adding support for the things that are very close to what we already support. Um, but additionally have a good amount of, of demand already. So. Some examples of that, like projects that we have already partnered with uh, and are currently live include uh, BNB Chain and, and Polygon. Um, others that, you know, many um, uh, people requested um, that will be live very soon would include like Avalanche, uh, Optimism, uh, and then we actually announced a partnership with Coinbase uh, for, for the base uh, layer two. Uh,
1: and so we'll be um, adding support for that as well in the coming weeks. Awesome, and and one of the cool new features that you uh, recently announced was the ability to uh, like search a user's Twitter handle, uh, and then be able to like find their address and query a, you know an assortment of transaction history um, and set alerts on these transactions. Basically, so I'm just curious, like how does that? Product work. What what is the what is like linking the Twitter handle to an actual wallet address on chain?
0: Oftentimes, it's
1: people themselves, right?
0: So many people now. There's kind of like this culture of even wanting your on-chain activity tied to your online persona, maybe not tied to your let's call it real world. Like government ID, um, because many people, you know, on on Twitter especially are, are anon or have some kind of like pseudonym that that they go by. But they'll at least want to tie their kind of on chain activity to that pseudonym, even if they don't go all the way to to the real name. Uh, and so, oftentimes, we're just working on again, like I mentioned, finding new data sources, seeing where people are, you know, talking about, um, you know, Twitter and talking about their cryptocurrency activity and. Uh, and trying to find as many sources as possible where people are linking and making a direct connection between themselves and their cryptocurrency addresses, of which one of those is Twitter. Um, and so, you know, given that so many crypto people uh, live in the Twitter ecosystem all the time, you know, this is like one such way uh, in which we can help. You know, kind of uh, co- connect that loop uh, and, and close that off. Where now it's like, okay, well, now you don't have to just search people by you know their real name or an institution by their real name. Now, you know, if they go by a pseudonym, you know, on Twitter or something, you could try looking that up instead.
4: So I think it would be helpful to take the most recent event that happened over the last weekend with USDC depegging. How were you able to use Arkham in order to kind of dissect the situation and see uh, where the DPEG began potentially, or maybe if, if there was a, a certain force behind it? What, what were the, your takeaways from the USDC DPEG?
0: Well, the number one thing was. Obviously the 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 exposure to, to SVB. Um, so analyzing what, what actually occurred uh, with the DPEG as somebody who 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 has money in, in USDC and had money in USDC. Um, what ended up happening was for for background for, for the listeners, right? You you have a coin uh, and that coin uh, is not sufficiently decentralized, right? It's decentralized in, in the sense that you know the money isn't in a single place. Um, but is spread out into, into multiple places, but is centralized in the sense that the, that multiple places is not on chain, on the blockchain. Uh, it's actually in a physical bank. Um, well, held digitally, but in a bank. Um, and so, you know, when they announced that, you know, they, they have a bunch of money locked up in, in a bank that, that, that was failing, there was kind of this broader question of, okay, well, what is the, what is the exposure? Um, to this right, because many people were looking at the list of banks that USDC had had exposure to, because they published it publicly, um, and then it was just a waiting game to see, okay, well, how much exposure do do they actually have to to this right? Like, there's like 12 banks on this list. Is it like 112? Maybe they had a little bit more. Maybe they had a little bit less. Let's figure out how how bad you know exactly this this actually is. Um, and so. What ended up happening was, the, you know, they announced that they had $3 billion plus uh, locked up in, 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 um, in Silicon Valley Bank. Um, but the total kind of outstanding amount was more than $40 billion um, w- within the coin. So it was under 10%. It was like, you know, an 8% kind of uh, uh, lockup on that. Um, and then obviously, the market freaked out. And that's when the DPEG actually began uh because especially on a weekend if people are just selling a bunch of this currency, you know, markets at the end of the day, the price of an asset is just how much people are willing to buy and sell for, right? It's that bid ass spread and then where it meets in the middle is the price. Uh and so if you have a bunch more supply than demand, no matter what the the asset is, uh the price is going to is going to fall unless there's some mechanism to keep it pegged. And the mechanism to keep USDC pegged is the is the redemption. Um, but the problem is that, again, because it was uh, like late on a Friday night, you know, banks are closed, and so you can't, you can't redeem. So there was no way to actually close that loop, and it was just all supply flooding the market, not enough demand, price goes down, and there's no mechanism by which you can arbitrage it with the redemption to keep the price at a at dollar. Uh, and so in my mind, immediately what I was thinking about when, when that happened um, was, okay, there are two worlds here. World number one is uh where USDC reprices to a so-called fair value, right? So this is the idea that, okay, well, if there's a hundred dollars outstanding, um, but only ninety-eight or ninety sorry, ninety-two dollars in the bank, um, then maybe the thing isn't actually worth one to one, maybe the thing is worth ninety-two cents, right? And that's and that's the new fair value. And a bunch of people were doing some math. On that for USDC, it's like okay, well, you know, they have eight uh, percent in Silicon Valley Bank, um, but you know, well, you know, it's not like Silicon Valley Bank lost all the money, right? They probably have uh, some money left, or if not, the majority of the money left. So let's say they they have eight, USDC has eight percent locked up uh, in SVB, but SVB still has you know fifty percent of the money left. Then maybe the fair you know discount is actually only four percent, not eight percent, right? And so there's all this kind of math that you have to do to try to understand. Uh, the risk and, and, and manage the, the risk that you're taking on. Um, additionally, obviously, there was, there was the fact that there could have been you know, a rescue, which obviously there ended up being. Uh, and so pricing in odds of a rescue, maybe the discount should be less, whatever. What ended up actually happening was um, it, people kind of fairly priced it at that 92 cent range. It actually fell below even 90 cents at, at one point. But that was one such possibility, one such world. The other world was one where there is no fair value because the true equilibrium point could have possibly been zero for USDC. How? Well, the answer is if you have a bunch of tokens outstanding, right? And, uh, and a certain amount of money in the bank, which is less than that number of tokens outstanding, then rather than there being a fair price, it all just trends to zero because a bunch of people rush to the bank to try to pull money out or sell as much as they possibly can of this USDC, then a bunch of people get $1 and then a bunch of people just get zero because it trends to zero because there's not as much money in the bank as they're supposed to be, right? And so that was the thing that I was actually afraid of. Thankfully, that did not end up happening. There wasn't enough of a run on the bank on USDC to where a bunch of people got $1 and a bunch of people got nothing. Um, But some people did end up selling at what ended up being the the fair value at like $0.92 or $0.90. Uh, up until the point where they said, "Okay, come Monday, like we're gonna do the redemptions one for one," and then the rescue came, and now we repegged. Um, so it was a pretty kind of dramatic situation, mostly because I don't think people are expecting there to to be trying to manage their their risk on USDC in the same way they have to do with other kinds of assets. Um, definitely a scary moment, um, but that was kind of my. My overall high level view on on what happened.
1: Yeah, that was a great analysis of of the the overarching situation. It's kind of funny. Sam and I were debating about this as it was happening, and I was a camp one guy. He was a camp two guy. So he was, uh, you know, he was kind of spreading that that doom and gloom on me. That you know, someone's getting zero and somebody's getting one. You can have both. You can definitely have
0: have, have both, right? I mean, I, I think it's 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 a probabilistic bet. It's like imagine you have a hundred worlds. I think in like. 70 or 80 of them you get the fair price situation but in like 20 to 30 of them you get USDC going to zero and it's just a question of which which world do you think we're
4: in yeah that was a scary weekend for sure cuz like i ran into the same math like kind of backed into it the same way you just described and i was like all right 95 and a half cents i think it's time to move out of this like just in case you know, they do honor redemptions come Monday one to one, there's a run on the bank, then you're left as the bag holder. The risk just like didn't make sense there for me. Plus, even if you would get, let's say eight or 95, 96 cents a dollar, if there was like some bankruptcy proceedings of some sort, like I I didn't know, all right, how long is it actually going to take until I can actually cash this USDC out because there's pretty much no on chain liquidity left. So I don't wanna be stuck holding this for six months or something waiting for all that to, to pan out. So I was in the doom and gloom camp, but I just remember UST far too closely. And I was just like, okay, I'm not risking this one this time. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And so essentially what then happened was USDC became this like bridge between an off-bank, off-chain banking crisis uh, and kind of like spread that on-chain because much of uh, DeFi today relies on the use of USDC. So we saw some protocols that were uh, kind of came out came out of this on top, so, like such as MakerDAO, who ended up acquiring $2 billion of USDC, essentially being like a, a lender of last resort and absorbing this USDC at a one-to-one rate for DAI, um, which, you know, Probably not the best long term bets that you want to be making is acquiring a depegging stablecoin in real time. Um, however, you know now that we've been repegged, it ended up being very beneficial. Did you see any other protocols that kind of had uh, an interesting dynamic play out? Not that I can recall um,
0: directly. I know for for you know other kinds of um, protocols, they they also have very similar similar stuff. I think we wrote a thread on uh, on Compound. And, uh, and the fact that Compound was, was using a bunch of uh, USDC-related uh, information. And, uh, and um, you know, for example, like, if you, if you have a more kind of decentralized system that's using something like a price oracle uh, in order to make decisions uh, about, about how the protocol works, then if something is not behaving as it should be, right, like, you can imagine programmatically setting USDC to $1, and you, like, build a bunch of code, assuming that USDC is always $1, because that's what it should be. And then it like depegs, Then in that situation, you could get some kind of protocol mishap um, where you know the thing's not functioning as it's supposed to because one of the things that you assume to be true is no longer true because the world is weird. Um, and uh, and uh, and I think like one such thing of that you know happened with uh, with, with with compound, and we wrote a, a tweet thread about it on uh, on on Twitter. Um, But I I don't remember the exact details at this point.
4: Yeah, DeFi definitely was not operating uh, (laughs) up to par over that weekend with with everything going on and Heavy reliance across DeFi on USDC, so it's a lot to to kind of digest. But there's been a ton of different interesting events over the past year between you know 3AC, Terra, Celsius, Alameda, like you name it, it's pretty much happened at this point. Has there been any other interesting takeaways that you've had over the major events that have occurred over the past year? by using Arkham?
0: Well, number one, I think it just highlights, like, <laughs> most important of all, it highlights the importance of on-chain analytics uh, and why cryptocurrency was made to be more transparent and, and audible. Uh, one of the things I kind of harp on a lot is just the fact that, you know, while blockchains and, and cryptocurrencies in general have been treated as Transparent and and auditable as they are, they are you know transparent and, and auditable in some sense. Uh, the reality is that the information isn't actually useful because, as we discussed earlier on this podcast, is just a, a bunch of random alpha numerical numbers all interacting with one another, uh, and it's difficult to know you know which two addresses are are, are related to one another. Or are they not related? You know what belongs to whom? You know you're operating in an environment where you know even if a bunch of the assets are held. On chain for a particular kind of exchange, and you're that exchange's customer. Like you have exposure to those people, you have exposure to them uh, as a service, as a counterparty. And if it's cryptocurrency related, then as we learned back in November, it's very important to understand that all of the money that is supposed to be there is there and is not being used uh, for for other kinds of stuff, for other for other purposes. Uh, and so that is only possible, you know. On chain, right? Like you can't do this, for example, like with a bank, right? So um, it is—it's uh, it, possible to audit people in real time, unlike in traditional finance on chain. But the reality is that if you don't know all the addresses and you don't know what belongs to whom, is you know, it's useless, right? And so with Arkham, that's actually what 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 we're trying to do. We're trying to tie those two things together and actually make what is already transparent and auditable actually useful by tying all of the relevant information to those pseudonymous like alphanumeric
1: pseudonymous addresses so another interesting thing that we could dive into was you know of course everyone by now has heard way more than they're, they're, uh, they would like about the FTX implosion uh, and the death of that exchange. And so one of the interesting things that you guys actually pushed out a report on uh, was how the liquidators that took over those funds have been controlling them and like some of the on-chain activity they've done. So uh, we've, we've seen a couple different blunders around like failed transactions and uh, scraping dust tokens out of wallets and paying more in, uh, in the gas to execute those transactions and the tokens they're receiving. But um, how do you v- think about like, you know, put like, in this is exact scenario. We gave you know more people more in the traditional finance world a very crypto-heavy task. Like, do you think that's something that makes sense going forward? Uh, and what are some of the things that you saw throughout the handling of these funds? There are two comments
0: that I would make with 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 respect to this. So, number one, um, you are dealing with a incredibly technical and uh, and, and sensitive. Uh, you know, piece of piece of tech, right? When you're operating on chain, and when you're trying to, you know, collect uh, all of this, uh, all of these user funds across like, you know, I mean, I don't know how many blockchains FTX needed to support because they had so many different assets that that were tradable, you know, some of those assets of which are are on their own chain. Um, A lot of them are ERC20, but some of them are on their own chain. So you, you need a ton of that infrastructure in order to find those assets. And and figure out what's going on with them, um, and uh, and as you mentioned, you have a bunch of a bunch of people who aren't necessarily crypto native, needing to operate like in the depths of the belly of a cryptocurrency exchange, misappropriated funds, you know, DeFi protocols. There's so much. There's such a steep learning curve for that if you're starting from zero and you don't already have a bunch of crypto native people. Um, mostly because crypto native people are working in crypto; they're not working for a, a you know a consulting firm or any kind of like bankruptcy related law firm. Um, and so that was issue kind of number one. I think having people who who are not necessarily crypto focused working on something where being crypto focused is like a prerequisite; it's like necessary. The second thing is you know skill. Aside, I think it is possible that there is a substantial amount of of bureaucracy at play as well. So, you know, one kind of way of thinking about this is it's incredibly important for, you know, uh, every single uh, now kind of creditor to the FTX estate, every single like user who ended up losing money, it's incredibly important for these people to all receive as much money back as possible. And uh, and that's the metric at, by which these people are measured. I think, unfortunately, that is not true in most of these kinds of in most of these kinds of cases. That's not actually the number one objective, um, but rather I think the number one objective is just to like account for everything that needs to be accounted for and attempt to collect everything that needs to be attempted to be collected. Right, which is a little bit different and can lead to situations like the one you just described, where you know if there's somebody's You know, if there's a creditor's user funds on some wallet, in some protocol, you know, whatever it is, and we're talking about $5, but that is somebody's user funds, and you've been given like gas fees in order to, you know, try to collect as many user funds as possible, then that is where you get situations where somebody ends up spending, you know, Thirty dollars to interact with a a DeFi protocol just in order to collect five bucks, because then you get to check the box that you know everything that needed to be accounted for was accounted for, even if it's not necessarily the most efficient way of going about doing it. Um, And so that's kind of like the second uh, big piece of 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 what I feel like is possible went wrong. Um, But yes, we've written a number of of Twitter threads about this, which you know people can read at Arkham Intel on, on Twitter. Um, where we kind of go very in-depth on a bunch of the actual specific liquidations, uh, many of which, as we were discussing before, like how do you actually tie the addresses together, uh, came from just the fact that like every FTX-related address is now sweeping funds into like one liquidator account, right? And so you can just assume that that's kind of the FTX, and it, they're trying to put as many of the on-chain funds as possible uh, into that address. So that's like one of the ways in which this kind of sleuthing occurs.
1: Yeah, this feels like another one of those, those opportunities or moments where the off-chain playbook that, you know, we've historically relied on is a traditional society just doesn't exactly map over to our on-chain world you know we see this with securities laws uh, and how it's really just not a one-to-one fit for most crypto assets and again we see this in like uh, bankruptcy uh, re- like clawing back funds like it's 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 not always the the one-to-one mapping that we would love to see um, and one of the the more interesting findings of this report that you guys put out was actually they were the li- liquidators removed um, some collateral from a Uh, lending protocol before they had closed the loans, actually resulting in liquidating the funds. Uh, And one of the quotes there was the liquidators themselves were liquidated, which I I just loved that piece there. Uh, But Sam, I know you had a couple other things you wanted to hit on.
4: Yeah. I was just curious because I have a lot of troubles, um, I guess, just trusting uh, the tags of a lot of these different sources. Like It's got to just be such a monumentous task in order to accurately do this. But you mentioned an algorithm that you guys use. Can you kind of I guess just shed more light on how you actually tag these wallets and how you ensure their accuracy.
0: So every address basically goes through, um, some kind of automated detection, uh, in auto labeling. Um, in many cases, maybe we are we're, we're not able to like tag something. Um, but the reality is that when you're dealing with hundreds of millions of, of labels and, uh, and millions of, of entities, um, you end up having to do a bunch of that in an automated fashion because people can't go through and like by themselves try to label all of that. you know you can't you can't have a human try to make a hundred million labels. It's not possible. And uh, so you have to use a computer. And so the, the, the algorithms um, that, that we have developed essentially are able to you know based on our own uh, history, confirmed addresses, back testing, variety of different things, we are able to assign a, a, a label with a confidence level um, to any given, you know, address in an automated fashion, right? And so uh, in some cases, it can come back as no label. You know, there, there's no information here that's actually like relevant for being able to assign uh, a, a particular entity. Uh, in other cases, you know, like for example, when something is a, um, you know, deposit addresses that only send to a single hot wallet, And we know what the hot wallet is because we've confirmed it itself, right? Then in that case, the label of this is this exchange's deposit address, you know, like this is a deposit address belonging to this exchange is very high confidence, right? Um, So we kind of can range from anything between 0% and, you know, near 100% confidence, depending on the structure of the address, the kind of information we have, the activity of the address, etc. Um, anything kind of greater than 95% confidence goes up for review. And so basically you have this massive pool of information and of addresses that are all being updated in real time for their confidence level. Anything that is very high confidence, that being like 95% plus then goes for review by one of our like analysts. So then that means like a human sits down Looks at the information, looks at the label, looks at like the evidence and, you know, reasons why it tagged it as it did. Uh, and then the human confirms whether or not it's, it's correct and, and to the best of our knowledge is, is right, in which case it then goes up to get staged and then pushed to production. Uh, or they say for whatever reason, like, no, the algorithm fumbled this one. I, I, I can see why it thinks that it's this person, but actually, like, it's not totally clear. Maybe this is their friend. Um, and then it stays just in our database uh, and until it gets new information and then goes up for review again. Uh, and so that's kind of the basic structure in, in, in which we do it. So you can kind of think about it as a really big uh, automated top of funnel uh, that kind of comes down as its confidence level uh, increases until the point where a human, it's like good enough for a human to review and then it eventually gets pushed.
4: Interesting. Okay. So you guys are putting in a lot of the legwork to tag a lot of these wallets, add all these different features. Uh, but as of today, it feels like the primary use case of Arkham is kind of flow flows essentially and different wallet tagging. So that's like a critical piece right there on its own. But I'm curious, what do you envision Arkham ultimately becoming in the future? And how do you all plan to monetize? Because I know now it's a beta and you're not actually charging customers.
0: Um, one thing that I was going to note uh, as well, by the way, uh, is um, the, the fact that users can not only use our labels, but they can also use their labels as well, right? So any address that remains uh, untagged users are able to add a tag based on the information that, that, that they have uh, directly to our platform in a way that is not viewable by us and is not viewable by anybody else in the Arkham ecosystem. So you have your own private version of Arkham uh, that you can then add as many labels as you want that belong exclusively to you and will never be shown to anybody else um, in order to augment our system. And if at any point you believe our labels are incorrect, you can update them and delete them as well, right? And so we give the users a ton of flexibility uh, on our platform. And, you know, if they want, they can just use it as a guideline, right? You don't have to use it as, um, you know, d- direct truth. Even I-, I think it is, but, you know, that doesn't mean people have to necessarily use it. In terms of um, where I-, I see the, the business going um, and where I see Arkham heading in, in the future, uh, I think right now we have a very kind of broad user base of uh, of consumers who who love using the Arkham platform. Uh, I think over time we are going to continue adding additional institutions and trading firms. Um, you know we already have several hundred who are using the platform on a on a weekly basis, on a daily basis in order to to do their work. Um, we're going to build significantly more infrastructure tools. So, for example, you know, it's not just via our front end that you can interact with the Arkham platform. We also have a back end and we have a ton of data, right? And that can be accessible by our API. Uh, and so that's another kind of like big thing that we're intending to, to, to do um, and, to, and to make widespread. So in general, I think we're going to continue building more picks, more shovels, uh, and a better way for people to continue to, to interact with data uh, in the cryptocurrency ecosystem.
4: That's great. And I got to ask this because I've, I've heard it floating around as a rumor, but is there a token coming out in association with Arkham or uh, not ready to disclose that one yet?
0: <laughs> no comment on that at this time, but, um, but I think you know, it's definitely very interesting. I consider myself quite crypto native. And so I think that um, having something that can really help us uh, develop an ecosystem and is sufficiently decentralized and has you know, very good utility, I think, I think it's an interesting idea for sure.
4: Absolutely. And then this will be my last question, but I'm just curious, personally speaking, um, because I know you are a pretty crypto native guy. So where did you find or where do you find yourself spending the most time? Is it in EVM uh, chains and Ethereum specifically, L2s? Like, What projects kind of interest you? Are you a DeFi guy, a GameFi guy? I'm just curious your take.
0: I think for the longest time, I've been very interested in Bitcoin. Uh, and that's sort of, to me, still the the number one, uh, you know, heart of crypto. I think, I think that can't be taken away. It's the first, it's the largest. The network effect is super powerful. Uh, and most of all, I feel like people in places like the US don't necessarily fully understand it because they don't understand that world of like high inflation where something like Bitcoin, even though it's volatile, can be a lifesaver. Like when you live in an economy where everything is actually down only, Due to the inflation, something like Bitcoin, like despite the the small volatil- volatility, volatility, um, can actually be you know a lifesaver. Uh, and so for me, I still I still think you know Bitcoin is like my favorite cryptocurrency personally still. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think in general, I spent I spent a bunch of time in the Ethereum Ethereum ecosystem. I think that's the the number one place where where I've, I've spent time. That was the first place where we started developing our our, our product. I think there's a bunch of other interesting protocols and ecosystems that, that I really love. Um, but the majority of, of, of my actual time trading and, uh, and doing other things is spent in, uh, in the Ethereum
4: ecosystem. Awesome. Well, we really enjoyed this and we appreciate you coming on, Miguel. I don't know if you want to tell the audience a little bit more about where they can find you or potentially sign up for beta access for Arkham. Yeah,
0: definitely. So you can always follow us on Twitter at Arkham Intel. I'm uh, at RealMiguelMorrell. And, uh, and additionally, you can go to www.archimintelligence.com in order to see some more information about us, see some wireframes, understand what the product looks like. Uh, and, uh, and naturally, you can sign up for the waitlist in order to join our, our, our beta program. Uh, and then afterwards, you can find us on platform.archimintelligence.com.